Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Randall Fritchie, Enterprise CISO at Denver Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Randall, thanks for joining me. Anthony, thank you for having me. Very good. Looking forward to a fun discussion. Uh, Randall, let's start out. You want to tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? So I am uh, the CISO over Denver Health. Uh, Denver Health is a hospital system in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we also have a lot of other healthcare-related functions. We have a health plan. Uh, we uh, we have the health clinics inside of the Denver City-County jails. Uh, we have health clinics inside of Denver Public Schools. Uh, all the ambulances in Denver, including the, the airport, are Denver Health ambulances and paramedics. Uh, and we have uh, our own public to he- public health department. And so lots of complexity, lots of really cool things we do for the community. And so I um, uh, make sure that we run our business securely mm-hmm. from a technology standpoint. Perfect. All right. I like to start these open-ended and just find out sort of what's on your mind. What are you thinking about these days? What are uh, trends you're looking at? Anything like that? Well, in my sector in healthcare, ransomware has been and will continue to be the biggest threat that we see out there. Uh, I always talk about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, the availability is the bottom of the triangle because it is the foundation. Uh, if it's not available, uh, that will cost your organization a lot of money. But in healthcare, it can cost lives or make people worse uh if the hospital is down due to ransomware uh, not only are we losing a lot of money but more importantly we are uh not being uh, in the community as our mission is uh, to serve those who need us uh, when they're you know in, in an ambulance on the way for a heart attack or you know needing a surgery uh, if we are down due to technology that is a very bad thing for the community that we serve um and so the you know the the threat is really the same, um, and ransomware is really evolving. You know, it used to be that they would send you something malware, you get it, it infects everything, encrypts everything, and then they ask for a ransom to give you a key. Then it became we're going to come in in advance, exfiltrate your data, then do the ransom thing, and now also ask for an additional ransom or more ransom, uh, so they won't release your data to the public. Uh, now it's really become almost like uh, the Sopranos, the cr- you know organized crime, where they'll do all of those things to you, and then they'll keep coming back every month and ask for their their monthly payment, and it's just an extortion scheme. And so once you pay, they know they can just keep showing up and keep having it happen over again, and they'll just continue to hold your data and threaten to release it unless you just pay them a an ongoing um, payment. And so those you know. The, the attackers are always more and more sophisticated, and so we have to continue uh, to be very well trained, uh, make sure that we have the right controls in place, and make sure we have the right operators uh, who can quickly spin up, uh, quickly respond, detect, and recover. Um, the other thing I really <clears throat> have seen over my years of experience is that 
you know, we're great operators. You know, we have tools and we block and tackle very well. Um, but uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, that was uh, an intelligence failure, right? We should have known about it. We should have had the ability to do something about it to prevent it. And, you know, um, so I think we need to make sure that we're not only great operators, but we are great intelligence analysts. We really have to get a grip on the amount of intelligence and the quality of intelligence that we have available to us and utilize that in a way to help prevent attacks. And I think that that's something that we haven't really thought of that much. I really don't hear a lot about that, but you know, uh, that is really something I think we could take to mature our industry as a whole. Uh, and leveraging the cloud security vendors is another good way of doing that. They get intelligence because they have such a large global install base and they're getting the threats and they're seeing the threats. And then they have the ability to update their databases and that will instantly apply to all of their customers. And so they're, that's one way that you can leverage intelligence that they're seeing uh, to apply immediately downstream to your controls. Uh, but I just think that we need, I see so much intelligence out there, but how much of that is actually getting input into our controls? Um, and how much of that intelligence is being used to help us think more strategically about how do we build our posture? How do we, uh, how do we mature and, and, and become more resilient and hopefully prevent attacks in the future? So we call that, uh, I believe, MTTR, median time to remediate, uh, that type of thing. How quickly is is the duration? How short is the duration between when we find out about something and when we can plug the hole that we just find out about, right? Because if we know about it, uh, a lot of other people know about it. The bad guys may know about it, and they may have been holding a zero day, right? And they find out, oh, everyone knows about it. Let's go launch. So those can be important. My question to you about threat intelligence um, is, does it feel, can it feel like drinking from a fire hose? Can it be overwhelming the amount of intelligence that you can have coming at you if you subscribe to, I guess, a number of feeds and things like that? Um, there's something I've been discussing with people about chasing false positives that can really be detrimental to a team's effectiveness for obvious reasons. So your thoughts there you, we want threat intelligence to to move towards prevention. How do we do that well? It really, it is the quality of the intelligence, right? I mean, if you just send me a list of a thousand IP addresses, that is, uh, in you know, on the level of um, the level of usability, that's really pretty low because those things can change pretty quickly. Even domain names, um, those can be changed really rapidly. Uh, it really is having an organization that can do the analysis on on the information and then present you with intelligent intelligence, right? Um, present it to you in a way that really encapsulates what this thing is and not just all the IP addresses you've seen in the last day. Uh, that to me is really important. And so I get I get information from the uh, FBI. Uh, Secret Service, CISA, um, and certainly we have our ISACs uh, that we get information from. And really, those are tuned to receive 
uh, quality intelligence and not just a bunch of IP addresses. And so having that information, we can really decipher understanding what we have and what we are, understanding what the threats are, and then doing, doing our own analysis specific to our organization and our sector and making sure we understand and prioritize that list of threat intelligence and, and make sure that we're actually covered on these things. Yeah, one, one, one CISO I spoke with said he felt one of the most important elements of his job right now was that MTTR, mm-hmm. that rapid having, I guess, the structure in place, the intelligence feeds and the internal structure to get that to a minimum. You agree with that? So I've been saying for years, uh, and this is an old statistic, but the FBI used to say it takes 19 minutes for an advanced persistent threat to get so embedded into your network that you'll never find them 19 minutes. And so, you know, in an organization that say you have someone on call and they get a page at two o'clock in the morning, how long is it going to be before they wake up, get out of bed, get to their computer, log in, connect, open up the alerts, start looking at them and trying to figure out the context you know, now you're talking 20, 30 minutes before we even understand what the context is. And by that time, you're just done. And so having those automations built in, um, having a having an organization that has some sort of a telemetry engine that can take input from your controls and your alerts and can filter those out and have that analysis done and and then even having the ability to quickly act on your behalf, uh, that really reduces that MTTR uh, to the you know to the to, uh, to a low point to a qu- very quick action, uh, and I think that that is really critical um, to make sure that you have that. Um, and so for me, we have that, and we're working more towards instead of being security operators to be. Uh, cyber threat intel uh, uh, intelligence analysts, and so we want to <clears throat> free up some of that blocking and tackling uh, to make sure that we have the ability to go out and actually do the analysis of the intelligence, and then apply that strategically to the organization. So let's talk a little bit about that and uh, what you were saying in light of managed services. Um, you talk about somebody getting out of bed. If you had, if you were leveraging a managed services, a large managed services company that might have assets not only in the United States but overseas, and I don't know if there's challenges there if, if you're dealing with entities that have overseas um, workers, but you might have uh, a setup where nobody has to get out of bed because it's daytime somewhere for everyone. So you have people looking all over the globe, um, and I I wonder what your thoughts are around that. Just the managed services, you know. Is that essential to running a good uh, cyber shop today? Well, I would say it's hard to find good people in cybersecurity. I mean, there are many great people in cybersecurity, but it's hard to find them. And um, it's also a challenge to spin up a, an internal FTE supplied uh, security operations center. Um, and so if you can find a good security operations uh mssp uh you know that is 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 an asset i think strategically uh that and we have chosen to do outsource that to somebody that that's what that's their bread and butter they have 24 7 high level 
analysts. Uh, and then we have people on staff who are during the day that work during the day. Uh, but we, you know, we chose to go with the outsource. And I think that we're more effect- cost effective that way. And then we can focus our internal resources in a different way. And you mentioned internally, uh, so you do want your people being analysts. That is, so you mentioned external analysts and internal. A lot of time we, we have to figure out, and I've talked to, you know, on the CIO side about this sometimes, when we talk to folks that are very into outsourcing certain things, we get down to a discussion of, well, what what is the critical skill in-house? So if there are things that we can give to outside entities that are done cheaply and more efficiently, what do we want that core in-house team to be doing? Mm-hmm. Really, it depends on everything, right? It depends on the organization specifically. Um, you know, sometimes you you want to have that in-house suck. You want to have those people who are uh, really focused and trained highly uh the the issue is that you really have to um you really have to train those people really well if you're going to do that and uh it's expensive to train cybersecurity operators and um so the other side of the coin then is for those few FTEs that you have and you have outsourced the rest of that then you want to make sure that those people are doing the right job so what what one possibility is is have them doing some auditing doing some analysis of the infrastructure um you know how many uh how often do your people have to change their passwords how often do administrators have to change their passwords and do get an automated audit plan going so that you can have that stuff happening every month and instead of being 100% security operators, they are also auditors, and they can do a lot of that work that is really hygiene, right? And hygiene is your biggest risk. The The lack of proper hygiene is the way that you're going to get hacked. And so having those folks uh, doing that work, they're very familiar with your internal organization and your infrastructure, and they can do that automation and, and get that stuff uh, uh, not only fixed, but keep it up to date, keep it, keep it clean. Oh, let's talk, you know, let's talk about phishing, uh, email, that kind of a thing is that that's the biggest vector, right? It's, it's the bad link. It's the bad attachment that's coming in through an email. It's maybe some social engineering where someone's positioning to be someone from accounts payable or accounts receivable or an outside vendor. They can get creative and things like that. Um, so that's sort of in my mind, that's like one bucket of threat. It's a threat where there's an email coming in. Uh, but we also know that there's a lot of concern around sort of the device base uh, vector, which is like a medical device, right? Or a printer or a camera or mm-hmm. something like that. Do you see those as I do as kind of different buckets? Certainly, um, biomedical and IoT is different than uh, phishing, but, um, you know, we all have, you know, if you go to, industrial manufacturing you know they have controls there that are really old and very expensive and you can't update them sometimes and you can't patch them sometimes and you have to allow remote support from who knows where and so all of those things are really outside of your normal standard the way we think of cybersecurity windows devices 
um, and firewalls and things like that. And so, you know, the biomedical device, the MRI machine, how do you secure that thing, right? I mean, that thing costs multiple millions and millions of dollars, and you're not going to replace it every, you know, every year or two uh, with the most recent updates. And, you know, you got to connect it to your network. Um, uh, we're looking at a virtual nursing where they actually put IoT cameras inside of the room to monitor for mainly patient falls. They want to see if a patient's a high risk of fall. If they start to get out of bed, uh, the intelligence inside of these cameras can actually show the movement of that patient and then send an alert uh, to say, hey, this patient's trying to get out of bed. And that way you can respond and go in there and help them and hopefully prevent a fall uh, and lots of other useful um, uses for that. But just think about it from a security perspective. You know, my 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 hair's on fire about it because I'm like, well, how does this thing connect? kind of data how are you identifying a patient or where are you sending the data is it, where is it is it in the cloud is it secure in the cloud and so you know that's the fun part and the challenging part about cybersecurity is that you know there's so many things going on they're really cool in healthcare but you all you have to be able to dig in there and make sure you know all the pieces and parts and connectivity and make sure it's all done in a secure way so you know, those are uh, those are really fun for me. I like I like dealing with those types of things. How often, you know, we got to get the governance worked out there, right? To where that doesn't come to you after it's done, and they say, "Oh, by the way, Randall, can you throw some security on this thing?" Right? I mean, that's an important part of this whole thing. Um, tell me about that. Tell me about how you how you sort of get ahead of that and say, you know, guys, going forward, this is how it's got to work. I need to be consulted when it first pops in your head, not right. after you've signed a contract with a vendor. 100%. And I teach uh, uh, cyber risk management for Harvard University, and I have um, five classes a year. And in that class, we really learn the fundamentals of risk management, cyber risk management. and but what they don't teach you is really the operational implementation and management of risk in an organization, dealing with all the, the different things you have to do, the politics and the processes. And so for me, the number one biggest challenge in, in cybersecurity risk management is a cultural one. And that is, how do I inject myself into the purchasing process so that I know about these things and we have the ability to look at them, risk assess them, identify anything that need to be mitigated before we actually sign on the dotted line. Because once we sign on the dotted line, we lose all of our leverage. And so getting yourself injected into that purchasing, all the different ways the organization buys things, um, we have to be there so that they know that. And it's really a cultural thing. And that does start with governance. It starts with from the top, this is what we're going to do. Every time you buy anything, you have to follow this process or you don't get to buy it. And if that, as long as you have that buy-in, then I can go and say, Mr. Purchasing Manager, IT Manager, you got to go through this process every time for any time we're going to buy technology or share data. And that has been a challenge every organization I've worked for. And, and that's something that I try to teach my students uh, as an operational aspect of risk management. Do you feel like you're in a good place at your organization now in terms of, and did it take a little time to get there? Absolutely. It took a, little, a lot of time to get there. Um, uh, in the beginning, they didn't know who Fritz was, right? <laughs> now everybody's like, whoops, did you ask Fritz? You know, can we buy this? Well, you better ask Fritz now. Yeah, everybody knows. 
uh, we have that now uh, process in place, very clear process that's been uh, communicated and educated on. And they go through that process. We do what's called risk stratification. And that's just them telling us a few highlights about what they're doing. Uh, what kind of data is it? Is it sensitive data? How much data? Where is the data going to be? Is it going to be in the cloud? And then from that, then my team can go out and pull that, send out our questionnaires and things like that in order to fully risk assess the solution. And then we put it in our GRC. And then if, if, if there are any mitigations, the other thing that I... Um, make sure that I always do is have what I call CLIPS, compliance, legal, privacy, and security. And so sometimes the, the business has to do it. They they really want to do it. We've identified this one big risk that is a showstopper, but they want to do it anyway. And so I say, okay, well, the, in our policy, it says you got to call a meeting of CLIPS, compliance, legal, privacy, and, and security. And that's generally the executives, right? The privacy officer, the CISO, the uh, um, the com chief compliance officer, and general counsel. And those we all meet with the executive of that of the team that wants to buy that. And that executive needs to, in light of my um, um, translation of the actual risk, they have to justify why they have to do it anyway. And then the the compliance organization and the leadership of that team or department can get together and make a decision going forward as to whether or not we really want to do it or not. And and most of the time that that ends up being a no. You know, if the CISO and the CIO are telling you no, you probably the general counsel generally isn't going to overrule you. So that's been an effective operational thing that we've done in risk management. Very interesting. Um, what would your advice be to uh, either a new CISO or a CISO in a new role at a new organization where um, things are not coming to them when they should? And, you know, this is the way we've always done it. Why do I need to come to you now? What would your advice be on how they can get things changed over there? Well, that's a pretty big answer. Um, clearly, building relationships uh, with the right people in the right areas is really critical. And one of the ways you have to, one of the things you have to do when you're building relationships is be able to demonstrate your competence and your trust. Um, and then you'll have that great relationship. Once you have that, then if I, if Fritz says we need to do it, we probably need to do it. And that's because I've spent years building relationships and demonstrating my competence and building trust and, and to the point where they say, yeah, we better we better listen to Fritz. Uh, that would be my biggest uh, piece of advice. And underlying uh, these relationships and underlying your skill is, I'm guessing, the message to your customers who are these internal people that I want to help you. Right. I don't want to say no. I understand you want this thing. I want to help you get it, but here's what it, here's a problem, or here's why we have to do it this way or that way, or it's going to take more time. But it's got to be communicated that I want to help you. I don't just want to say no, so I have less work to do. Maybe I could say no to everything and I could go have a cup of coffee, right? Right. No, that's one hundred percent true, and certainly that's a given. That you know, the CISO's job is to support the business, and so you know, I want to help run the business and grow the business in a secure way. And so they know that I'm there as a partnership with the business 
but I'm going to always have their back, right? I'm going to always be watching out for the best interest and and the security, certainly, of our patients, our families, and their visitors, and our employees. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that takes a while to establish that. And if and certainly if you say no to everything, you're going <laughs> to get a bad reputation, and you probably won't have your job very long, and you're not going to enjoy it while you have it. And so, really, it is being a partner to the business. And when you present to the business, you know, you're, I always be selling. That's why I say always be selling. You have to be selling yourself. You have to be selling your program and why you're there and what the value you bring to the business is. Uh, and if if once they get that, and, and a lot of that has to do with branding, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, your professional branding of yourself and your team. Um, you know, we have a blurb at the end of every email of every single team member. Excellence is our standard. We have that as a motto for our team. And that's the message that we send to the organization. That's it's like branding. And so the organization knows that we hold ourselves to the highest level of excellence and that we're here to help the business be successful and protect our protect our protectees. And and really it sort of drives me a little bit into the whole um sheepdog concept. Um the sheepdog is uh protecting the sheep from the wolves. Mm-hmm. And um you know, if you're in military, if you're in law enforcement, and even if you're in cyber, your job is to stand on that wall and watch watch out for the wolves and to protect the sheep from the wolves. I saw a picture of a an actual sheepdog that had fought the wolf and was all bloodied, mm-hmm. but the sheep were safe. Mm-hmm. And that protecting and serving is what we do, whether we're in military, law enforcement, or cyber. We protect and we serve. Um, and the key concept about the sheepdog is that we're not related to the sheep. We're actually related to the wolf. Mm. Right? We're a dog and we're related to the wolf. And so we understand the wolf. We understand their motivations. We understand their tactics and their methods. And there we are in the best position to protect the sheep. Very good. And um, availability, you mentioned it at the beginning of our discussion. It seems to me it would be important you know, from an educational point of view and letting them understand why cybersecurity is important to tie it to availability, mm-hmm. right? I mean, these systems you use, your tools that you use to practice medicine, if we don't have good cyber hygiene, if we don't follow some of the things I'm saying, if we don't embrace cybersecurity, you won't have them. Try and take care of your patients without them. You don't want to do it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is, we want to tie that in, right? So we did a, we did an exercise. We got all the executives uh, in the room and we did a tabletop exercise. And the exercise scenario was uh, we are down due to ransomware for 30 days. How do you run your business? How do you serve your patients? How do you treat your patients? And, you know, like yeah. nobody had thought about that before, right? Like how dependent we are on technology, um, you know, well, we can fall back to downtime procedures, right? That's the common theme, right? Go to paper charting, do all of that. Well, we didn't even have enough uh, inventory of paper charts to, to last a few days. And so that exercise we did right before the pandemic, and we have since done a lot of stuff uh, like ordering forms, uh, downtime forms, repositories, things that... Uh, you would never have thought of, but how dependent are you on technology? How can you continue to serve your patients 
without technology, without connectivity to the internet, without email, um, certain systems that that may go down. How how do you do that? And so it's really been a great thought process for the leadership of the healthcare side of our business um, to uh, uh, to think that think through that. I could keep going on that for another hour, but I only have you for a few more minutes. I know you've done a lot of work. You know, I know you were in law enforcement, um, which is great. I know you've done a lot of stuff with the FBI, um, the ISSA, and you recently were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, touch on any of those things in our last few minutes, whatever you want to highlight. Yeah, so um, really, as I talk about building relationships, networking, those are really important activities to be successful in cybersecurity. Um if I hadn't done any network in my in my career, I, I would never be where I'm at today. And so it really is about the activities that you're involved with, the organizations and the people that you're involved with, and uh, really having that, uh, having those relationships. Um, and one of the ways to do that, that I found out very quickly was the ISSA, Infor uh, Information System Security Association. It's a global organization. It's been around since the 70s. And they have chapter meetings locally, and you go to those meetings and you network with people uh, and you learn. Uh, you have a speaker uh, and you get to listen to a speaker. You have lunch, whatever, and uh, and you have fun um, mm -hmm. and you get to know those people over the time uh, to the point where maybe you're going out to lunch with them once in a while and really building the relationships. You learn from each other. You learn from that. Um, and it's really a cool way to give back the, the uh, older you get in your career that for me has uh, become very important to me to give back. And so that's one way I do that. Uh, but then also through those networking relationships, I've gotten involved with FBI. Um, the FBI CISO Academy, there's only been 13 classes now, and I was in class number 13. And they they send you to Quantico, Virginia at, at their National Training Academy. Uh, and you for a week you spend uh, in uh, uh, classified briefings uh, and you get really high level information about what the FBI does and some of their actual investigations and how they've taken down um, some of these dark net, you know, organizations and their infrastructures um, and give you advice to go back, especially how to interface with uh, law enforcement and, uh, you know, just making sure that you know they're available if you need them you know and and, and that's not 100 percent right they're going to look at your case and they're going to see if they actually want to send somebody but um you know certainly understanding when it's appropriate to engage with law enforcement especially federal law enforcement um and so so that was really interesting you know we got to do a lot of other cool things like we got to go to their range and shoot their guns uh, we got to go see the hostage rescue team which is really um uh, you know, the people you call when you know what hits the fan, those are the people mm -hmm. um, fast roping in. Um, and so just things like that. Very cool. And, and, you know, I got nominated because one of my former students is an FBI cyber agent and he nominated me to go to that. And so really it is giving back and having those relationships. And that's really the way that I've continued to build my career and, uh, you know, and teaching for me is really my retirement plan. I, I plan mm -hmm. to continue to teach even when I'm not a CISO uh, because I always want to be given back. And I always want to mentor and help the next generation um, because, you know, we've come a long way, but we have a lot farther to go. 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, you were previously in law enforcement. You want to just tell us briefly about that and mm-hmm. just tell a little bit about the, the it's a natural continuing fr- continuum from sort of traditional law enforcement to uh, what is essentially enforcing cyber laws. And then, as you mentioned, we have that bridge between the cyber and the physical where you can have, um, you know, cyber crimes that are taking place that eventually result in physical arrests of human beings. So one, one flows right into the other. Absolutely. So, yeah, I was a deputy sheriff in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, which is Marion County. Um, and they're, um, can't remember the name of it, but when the city and the county are the same, Denver's the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I was a deputy sheriff for five years. Um, and I always had a technical aptitude. I always, you know, wanted to take things apart and figure out how they worked and put them back together again. Uh, and so shortly after um, I left law enforcement, I went into IT and I started on the help desk and I worked my way up and I got certifications and degrees and everything else along the way uh, until I got into cybersecurity. And that really sort of hit the spot for me. That was my that's me. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm the guy that protects and serves. And so for me, cybersecurity was just as natural as law enforcement. And I think that that's the mindset uh, I've mentored. Uh, folks who have come from law enforcement into cyber. I've mentored folks that have come from the military into cyber. And we all have the same mindset. Um, you know, we're there to protect. And so mm-hmm. we understand, we, you know, we learn the tools and we learn the techniques and uh, analyze the intelligence and apply those in a way that we can protect what, you know, we've been charged to protect. Final question. Any final piece of advice for your colleagues based on your experience and what you've found that's made you successful in your career? From a non-technical standpoint, certainly being able to communicate well, uh, being able to b- build relationships. You know, if if you go out to these events and these chapter meetings and and you know uh, academies and things like that, you know, if you're in a room with somebody, if you're in a room and and uh, you don't know them, change it. Go up, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Fritz. I'm X Y Z. Because that person is probably doing the same thing. You know, most people in the technology are introverts. And, you know, it's not natural for us to just walk out and and make ourselves known and shake a hand. But definitely do that. Make an effort to go out and shake hands. Make an effort to uh, improve your communication skills. It's really, really important. And building relationships to be able to communicate well, you know, verbally and via email and everything else. Uh, You have to be able to communicate well. Um, and so that's really important thing and find a mentor, um, find somebody who's, who's done it and is willing to share and and help you, uh, become your champion. Right. Um, you know, all the people on my team, they know I'm, you know, I'm there for them. I'm their champion and, and I will help them. And I, I'm teaching them to be the next CISO basically. And so find a mentor, attach yourself to them and, um, um, take it, take it seriously uh, I never had a mentor for a long time. And uh, now that I am able to be a mentor, to me, it's one of the best parts of my job. That's wonderful, Randall. Uh, I guess you go by Fritz quite a bit, it sounds like. Okay. Okay. Well, Fritz, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, I think our audience is really going to enjoy this. So thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, for having me. <laughs>